0: All right. Welcome. Here's our first question for today from Jonathan Weber. The question is about uh, adding new books to the Bible. He says, why can no new books of the Bible be written? Why is the canon closed? Which is um, a question that I think catches people off guard. When you get this question, you're thinking suddenly I have to prove that the canon is closed. Otherwise, catch this. Otherwise, the automatic result is that we're open to new books, even even that it's likely that we should be adding other books to the Bible where I have to then ask, well, what, verse, what books do you want to add now? Because I couldn't prove it was closed. I'm just talking about normal people on the street when we have these conversations. That's where it seems to quickly go to, right? So um, do any Bible verses actually say that the canon is closed, that there's to be no new scripture until the second coming? Um, it, it, that's actually a bit of a... Uh, the, the problem with that expectation, that we would actually have a verse that says that the Bible is is closed and there's going to be no, no new books added, is that any book that that verse appears in, right, well, once that book got to a church, they would no longer accept any new scriptures, even if they had yet to have received, say, I don't know, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, uh, Jude, Revelation. Um, you see, Revelation, it's not as though it went out to every church at the same time. Some churches got it earlier than others. And so any book that was to say that would actually would 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 countermand the canon of Scripture. So that isn't really what we're going to look for. What we're going to look for is some other things. So let me walk you guys through my response to this. Um, and you can think about it. See what you think. And see if you think some of these are valid points. I think they are. I think it tells us that we have good reason to think that we can ignore um, new books claiming to be scripture, that effectively the canon is closed. Canon meaning that rule, the, the word canon with one n it means like a rule, the rule of faith or, or the Bible is our ultimate rule of what we believe. Okay, so question I have for those who think the canon is open. Why should we add a new book to the Bible and specifically which one? I say which one, because this is the topic most people who talk about this avoid. They only want to talk about it in vague, vague principles like, well, you know, God, God, you can't muzzle God. You can't stop God from speaking. If he wants to speak, he can speak. And I'd be like, well, I mean, the problem with that logic, of course, is we're not saying what God can do. We're asking what God will do. And if we have reason to believe he won't do something, that's not about his ability. This is, of course, about what he desires. And so I've reason to believe that God won't. Um, uh, I don't know. Deny his own word, <laughs> you know, like th- things like that. Like I, I, have things that I can reasonably believe God won't do. Um, okay. So, what new book do you want to add? It makes no sense to argue for an open canon of Scripture and to have no specific book to add to that canon of Scripture. Right. I'm. I'm. I'm going to write a whole. I read this a whole article written by a scholar trying to argue for it in principle an open canon of Scripture. It felt very scholarly you know, this is like, I don't feel like I'm really in the world of scholarship I feel like I live in the world of normal people and I try to access the world of scholarship to understand it and think about it. Um, but you really are living in the world of scholarship when you're like, in principle, the canon is open. I have no application of this principle whatsoever. Effectively, it seems kind of closed, but in principle, it's open. This was the article I read. That to me seems uh, very unwise. What book do you want to add to the Bible? That's what I want to know. What book do you want to add? Because then we can have a real discussion about how that's not going to work. <laughs> so we'll talk about some specific examples. Book of Mormon, um, the the Pearl of Great Price, the Doctrine and Covenants. These are uh, Latter-day Saint works or Mormon, Mormon works or we have like the Quran, or we have the Gnostic Gospels. We'll talk about those in a little bit. But first, let me give us um, what I think is a thoughtful understanding of why we should not add new books to the Bible, or even be open to new books being added to the Bible. Number one, consider what it took to actually get New Testament scripture in the first place. And uh, while I'm doing this, if you're new here, welcome to my live stream. You can put your questions in the in the live chat. You, if you put a Q at the beginning of your question, that's how you ask ask a question. It has to be during the live chat, not afterwards, not in a replay or something. And we take 19 of the questions of the 20 come from the live chat every uh, every time we do this. If you put a in Q a in Q, which is short for anonymous question, then we won't read your screen name when I when I. Um, Read the question out loud. All right. So what did it take to get the New Testament scripture? Think about this for a second. The the New Testament scripture wasn't just like spiritual men wrote stuff and then people were like, let's call it scripture. Rather, it took the incarnation, death and resurrection of Jesus. It took the apostles being commissioned by Jesus. And then it took the, the, the writings of the New Testament being connected directly to the apostles and the teachings of Jesus. So this monumental earth moving stuff had to happen. In order for us to get our New Testament scriptures. Show me something like that. In modern times. And it's not there. Right? Like what you have is Muhammad. Who just has like private visions. Um, what you have is Joseph Smith. Who um, who gets golden plates that nobody can find. And he, tr- he sticks his head in a hat. This is actually in Mormon history here. Puts his head in a hat. In a hat. And he calls out. So he can't see anything. Right? And he calls out. Uh, translations that uh, a scribe is writing down as he calls them out, sometimes plagiarizing from scripture and putting it in a new context and stuff like that. Um, Anyways, I move forward. So what do these other books have like this? Nothing. There's no book like it that is, has got the earth shattering sort of um, justification, like the incarnation, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that the new Testament has as far as adding New scripture that, yeah, it's not there. Or if you get scripture from uh, the Jews where you have the Exodus and all these amazing events right here, this kicks off in scripturation. That moment is these massive earth shattering, redemptive miracles going on. Now let's talk about the nature of apostolic teaching. This is something I think a lot of people miss. It's very biblical. It's really kind of cool. The nature of apostolic teaching is that the teaching of the apostles, and I mean like the original apostles, Jesus's direct apostles, not someone else today who claims that title, um, is that their teaching is the foundation of the church. Check this out. The church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, when you think about this in relation to scripture, is it directly about scripture? Uh, Not directly, but it most certainly is about scripture in its application. You see, the church, that is all those who are followers of God right now, these people, they are being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which refers to this time of inscripturation directly related to Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Um, the prophets could be, uh, well, we could debate that later. But the point I'll, I'll talk about here is this, there's a foundation that's laid and we're built upon it. And the New Testament represents that foundation. That's that's the connection with the New Testament. The, the job of giving us our theology was not just started in the first century as though it's an open job that hasn't been finished yet. It was completed. Here's another point for a closed canon. The job of giving us our theology, our beliefs about Jesus and the revelation of who he is and the, and the teachings related to him, this was not just started in the first century. It was completed in the first century. So Jude chapter one, there's only one chapter with Jude, but verse three. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. All past tense there. The faith is not here talking about positive feelings of belief, but rather the doctrines that we actually hold to. Okay, that's the faith or the doctrines of the faith um, that you're to contend for that. Because it was once for all delivered to the saints, meaning you don't need to learn it again after you've received the apostolic teaching. You just need to hold on to it. That's a, that's a preaching about permanence, the permanence of the apostolic teaching. It's, it's, it laid the foundation and now our job is to simply hold to it. This implies a closedness about the, the process of getting the full teaching of who Jesus is. Does that make sense? I, in my head, it makes sense. I hope it makes sense in your head. Let's look at another verse. Romans 16, 17. Now, I urge you, brothers, uh, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. That is that the doctrine uh, that they had been taught, which includes the stuff that Paul just wrote them in Romans, because he starts Romans by saying, I'm going to give you guys the knowledge of the mystery of the gospel of Christ that I have received. And he gives him all this teaching and he's really wanted to, he's, he's an apostle laying a foundation here of, of theology, which Jude three says, and they have to contend for. And he's saying the same thing. Hey man, let this be the rule where anybody who's like, who's not just causing divisions and offenses, but causing them contrary to the doctrine, which you learned. That is uh, when I follow Jesus, it might cause division with somebody, but it's if my failure to follow causes division, that's when I, that's when I avoid those people. Okay, that's a side issue, but I just thought I'd mention it for those who know what I'm talking about. All right, next point is this. So the job was, was the foundations of, of the church is found in apostolic teaching. That's found in the New Testament. The job of that was done once and for all. It was completed in the first century. And so looking for, you can't point to Jesus as your justification for new scriptures after the first century because that job was done. So what justification do you have is my point. Uh, Let's look at Hebrews chapter one. There's more, there's more to share. Hebrews chapter one, verse one, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke. Now we're talking about his revelation that is, is recorded in scripture in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world's. I want to keep reading because it's a, it, I, Hebrews. I can't wait to teach Hebrews. Hopefully I'll start later this year. God willing. Um, okay, check this out. God spoke times past. This is Old Testament to the fathers by the prophets. Now you might say, well, it doesn't mean every single way God spoke is recorded. No, no, no. But it includes the Old Testament. And that's all that's left for the generations. So in the most important sense, his speaking is is there in the Old Testament. And then has in these last days spoken to us by his son. My point here is Jesus represents a new round of inscripturation because God has spoken to us finally spoken to us loudly and spoken to us in these last days through Jesus, the son. What does this imply? I think it implies that Jesus is God's final word to mankind. And so it creates no expectation for further scripture. Because it's Jesus, he is the dividing point, right? Everybody else who comes up, think about how this works. Muhammad shows up with the Quran and now Muhammad's like, okay, either accept or reject Muhammad. He's the greatest of the prophets. This is what they say. And so he becomes the dividing line of whether or not you're going to be on God's side. Jesus is no longer the dividing line because Muhammad has replaced Jesus. Joseph Smith shows up and he says things like, I've am, I'm, I've done what even Jesus couldn't do. And in a sense, I'm greater than Jesus. Yeah, Jesus, he Joseph Smith actually said that. Look it up. Um... <laughs> And, uh, and he's, he becomes the new dividing line where he's like, Hey, all the other denominations are an abomination. Either you follow me, Joseph Smith, my teachings, or you're an abomination to God. That's how Mormonism began. Uh, modern Mormonism is trying to move away from those kinds of claims, but it's in their core teachings. So it's, so they're moving away from their own core teachings, which is a whole other question about how can you even have a chance of being valid when you don't believe what you believe. Um, at any rate, Jesus is the one. He's he's the the final the final like you know statement of God to humanity is Jesus. He's the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. The nature of Jesus as God's final like proclamation to mankind is that inscripturation is done uh, or at least it makes more sense along those lines. It's part of a case for that. Jesus is God's final word. Another way to put it is Colossians 1:26. It says the mystery, the mystery, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. This is talking about the gospel, which is all centered around Jesus, right? It's a mystery that was hidden. It was prophesied and it was hinted at and it was explained, but, but, uh, but in with, with like a veil with, with, um, uh, I, I think the easiest way to put it is Easter eggs where it's like, you, you won't get it fully until you see Jesus in person in the new Testament. But once you do, you'll look back and see how God has hidden these Easter eggs all over the place. Maybe the, maybe the term Easter egg is especially appropriate for this because it's, you know, Easter, you know, the death and resurrection of Christ. Um, so this mystery, it was hidden and now it's been revealed. The, the entire scripture, old and new Testament is a big um, a big story about Jesus ultimately, uh, not that there's nothing else in it, but the, the meta narrative, the overall full narrative is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's not humanity. It's Jesus, right? Because Jesus is, is the God man, you know, and he's the one who is, is is, it's created through. He's the one who it's redeemed through. He's the one who is the ultimate judge. And he's the one who's the, the coming King. All of the things refer to Jesus. Jesus himself says this, now, on the road to Emmaus, the disciples in the Gospel of Luke, they they actually encounter Jesus in his resurrected body and he tells them, you know oh you um you're slow and hard to believe all that the prophets have said and and he then lets them know that everything in the scripture was was written about him and it says on the road to Emmaus that he he on this long walk, he expounded to them like he did like a survey of Jesus in the Old Testament, so to speak, which is my favorite series I've, I've ever done. you guys could look it up and there he, he teaches them how in all the scriptures it, re- it refers to jesus how it refers to him and his work so that the the meta-narrative of the bible is completed like if you were looking at it as like a giant story or an episodic you know five season netflix series or something you would look at it and say the story arc is completed in jesus everything that they set up they've knocked down everything that they prepared for they have accomplished Jesus is the full answer here so the mystery has been revealed there's no expect there was no expectation for an, a, a third Testament so to speak or new books um the Old Testament anticipates the Messiah and salvation for the world right but it doesn't actually provide those things the New Testament it it accomplishes all that and what does the New Testament set up here's a great question for us. Because right? the Old Testament set it up so that when the Messiah showed up, you're ready for more scripture because he's going to be like Moses and he's going to be a prophet like Moses. He's going to be one who gives us scripture. But the New Testament, what does it set us up for? It sets us up for the second coming of Christ, not new scripture, the second coming of Christ, which will, will I mean, maybe, you know, if God wants to add new written words at that time, that's fine, right? But we're, we're obviously not there. So the thing the New Testament expects hasn't happened And anybody else who shows up with books, they're they're coming uh, with no prophecy to, to prepare us for these people, like Joseph Smith, who Book of Mormon guy, right? He was so aware there was no prophecy about him in the Bible that he wrote, literally wrote extra verses in his own version of Genesis. So chapter 50 has extra verses in Genesis. And in this book, he writes about himself. Being um, the, the the Joseph Smith Jr. and how he's going to come and bring new scripture, so he just tried with no manuscript evidence, just tried to write himself into the Bible. Like this is to me, this is alone enough reason to, to say Mormonism has got to be false. No true prophet would do that. Or Muhammad, where they try to find Muhammad in the scriptures because there's no prophetic foretelling for Muhammad for the Quran. So when you look at these verses in context, what where Islamic apologists will try to say that Muhammad is found in the Bible. It's a it's a joke. Like, just read it in context. It's terrible. It's nothing like the quality we have in the, in the um, Old Testament, referring to Jesus, uh, which I have lots of videos on. You guys are welcome to check out. Um, so, what else have we got here? Um, there's also some support from history. In order for the New Testament to be received as Scripture in the first place, it was required that it was apostolic. This is something that's pretty consistent when we look at the the, the sparse records there are about the reception of the new Testament as scripture, but there's things like the meritorian fragment, like the earliest thing we have where there's actually a list of scriptures. It's probably not complete, but it's there. It rejects the shepherd of Hermas, for instance, this uh, second century work. And it rejects it because it was written uh, in our time. They say during the second century, that alone was enough of a reason to set it aside. Not, not as bad, but as not scripture. Why? Because Anything that was going to be received as Holy Scripture had to be apostolic, by which we do not mean, like, Bethel's version of, we're apostles today, too, not like, and I'm not saying Bethel's writing scripture, I don't think they are. I just mean, we don't mean that kind of meaning of apostle. We mean, Jesus had his specific apostles, he directly commissioned. If it doesn't tie to them, either written by them, or a recording of their teachings, then it's not apostolic. So there there's a um there's support in church history that the church has has had this attitude uh, all along um and so corporate reception by the church it, it it also seems it seems to go along with with real scripture i would say if if christians around the world affirm that something is scripture like if we've got you know people from all sort of branches of christianity all agreeing these books are the bible all of them then that's really strong evidence that those books are the bible now i'm not saying here That the scripture, and this is very important for those who want to follow this this debate in detail, I'm not suggesting that Christians can, by virtue of their agreement, that they can create scripture because that doesn't happen. You don't create scripture, only God does. What I'm suggesting is scripture imposes itself on the church by the work of the Holy Spirit and by its own power. It imposes itself on the church such that the church will find agreement on it. That seems to be the case. Do you catch that? The, the power here is in, in God and in, in his spirit and in, in his word. It's not in the church. We're not creating scripture. We're simply acknowledging it. As in the canon has always been a closed thing, has always been, I should say, a limited thing. There's only so many books God inspired and the church is merely discovering these things. We're not, we're not creating them. There's a big issue there where a lot of Catholic apologists in particular well, and Orthodox will try to suggest that the church, they'll talk as though the church created scripture when they were like, Hey, these are the books God gave us. Hey, we agree on that as if they're making it rather than simply recognizing it. Um, let's talk about the historical dangers of new scriptures here before I go to the next question here. Um, the Gnostic gospels were the first probably really early things that were impersonating scripture. Um, so these are not just early Christian writings, rather these are non-Christians who are writing things pretending to be Gospels. So they're they're writing Gnostic or uh, basically uh, ungodly, unbiblical, untrue theology. And then they're claiming, oh, well, yes, Thomas, Thomas is the one who wrote this. And yet they're writing over 100 years after Thomas dies. And it's not anything that Thomas ever would have said, historically speaking. So these Gnostic Gospels, they, they tried to be new scriptures. They were rejected by the church. The Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, have tried to be scriptures. They've been rejected by the church, rightly so. Clearly, um, whatever uh, Joseph Smith has going on, it's not scripture. Um, uh, Islam the, and, the, and the Quran attempts to bring in new scripture. So what we're, what we're saying here is every attempt I know of where someone tries to make a real real effort to add scripture to the Bible where there's like a full on movement about it, 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 at least the majority the vast majority of them, it seems that they're very obviously attempts to hijack Christians away from the truth of Christ, such that all these scriptures about holding fast to that, which you've been given, they would apply to those situations, meaning the Bible refutes them. Um, let's, let's answer this question now, what theoretically could be new scripture? Like, let's just say theoretically, theoretically what would it take for you to accept something some new book Mike as scripture someone could say well Mike you think that there had to be this sort of amazing work of God kind of like with the Exodus that 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 um, that was this amazing work of God or with with Jesus's death resurrection uh, this amazing work of God that that kind of like helped kick off in scripturation was something of evidence Um... Uh, Yeah. So what about a new powerful work of God? What if God does some amazing miracles and that legitimizes a prophet and this and the scripture that they end up writing? Um, I think actually, no, because it's not just amazing miracles. I have two answers to this. One is the Bible doesn't predict those people like show me in scripture where that's predicted, because ever since God first gave us the initial scriptures in the Old Testament, it's Jesus didn't just say, believe me, because of what I say, he says, believe me, because Moses wrote of me. That even Jesus himself, with all his authority, he appeals to the Old Testament to validate his own words. Okay, he didn't have to, but he did so. Why? For your sake and mine, so that when other false prophets show up, even if they have miraculous works. I don't know, I don't know why I said miraculous, but mirac- miraculous works. Now I can't say that word ever again. Um, that they still are not legitimized merely by the miracles. It's one of the elements, but it's not the only one. So we don't have that. In fact, the New Testament actually warns against false preachers, false prophets, people who come with false signs and wonders. So yeah, that alone would not legitimize a new work. What about like if I found a lost letter of Paul, Mike, and it was Paul's letter to the Laodiceans. He mentions that, you know, so that, and then we somehow prove that Paul wrote this and then, then do we do we incorporate this old letter into scripture? And I would say this is like a true dilemma that will that will almost certainly never happen. <laughs> because here what we'd have is, if it was really Paul, we have an actual apostolic teaching. And it's in the form of other things that we that we did receive in scripture, like the other letters to the Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, those types of things. And so, and it's written, it's written by Paul. So that, that would seem to lend itself. The only strike against it would be, um, I guess these two ideas um, should we think that every single thing Paul wrote is scripture? No, probably not. I, I, it does just because someone wrote scripture doesn't mean everything they ever wrote is scripture. That doesn't follow the second issue. So at least that opens the door to there being a problem with that. Um, the second issue is it's clear that the Holy spirit did not see fit to preserve this for all people, for all time. And so you'd have to wonder um, what category you would want to put this, this this lost letter of Paul, which we will almost certainly never discover. Not only this, but we would have to really be, be, have a lot of good evidence to think that Paul actually wrote it. This far removed a sudden new discovery. We'd have to have a lot of good evidence to suggest that he actually written it. Uh, but yeah, why did the Holy Spirit leave it out if that was something he wanted for us to have? God's certainly sovereign there. We would have to answer that question. Um, so that would be a challenge. But you can always come up with weird hypotheticals that are outlandish that are not likely to ever happen. Um, in all practical, in all practical measures, the canon of scripture is closed, I believe. Can God still speak uh, prophetically or something? Yeah, but just because God shows you, God shows you something. Hey, I want you to be a missionary over in uh, in Uganda. And you go, okay, does that mean you're, you're you're writing scripture now? I have to add that to the Bible. No, that's a silly approach. And I reject that. All right, let's go to your guys' next questions. I hope that helps answer that one. Number two, yeah, the first one's a lot longer than the others, but that's how it always is because I spend time working on that one, thinking about it. Um, question two is about First Peter, but before I read it, I want to let you guys know I got a new camera. Okay, it's been it's been on back order for a while. I've been wanting to get a new camera. I know we've had issues with it blurring in and out all the time, and I got the new camera. And if it's working right with this new autofocus system, that am I still like you're not getting the background you're actually getting me even if I like move around a little bit I hope <laughs> Um anyway that's so that's good news that's good news and, and I got I got this little, little globe here because I think it looks cool decided to set the gummy bears aside I know I love the gummy bears but I don't really eat gummy bears much anymore I've been eating so much less candy um, I thought I I, I I won't tempt y'all too much with just leaving a jar of gummy bears. I have it around here somewhere, but I'm actually going to throw it away. They're super old. They're kind of gross now. (laughs) Okay. So question two, Joanne Pario, uh, first Peter three verses five through 17 is the scripture reference she gives us. So we'll get that ready. 15 through 17. Um, she says, what would you say to anyone who would ask you about the hope you have in you and are there times or certain people who you wouldn't bother providing that answer to? If, for example, someone you know, isn't really interested in the answer and just seeks to make fun of you. Uh, Sarah says the camera's working great. Good, good, good. I did some testing and stuff, so I thought I thought so. Uh, oh, oh, side note. Okay, sorry, Joanne, I'll get to your question in a second. Side note, the old camera, for some reason, it just didn't really show up reds very well. But like, I'm using the gummy bear jar as an example here. I don't know if you guys can tell these that's like a red gummy and the other camera like they always showed up as if they were like Orange there's a lot of Whatever other colors here, but like here's like a red Does the red look red like I would wear a a red shirt and it would look orange on camera So this is not that important, you know, I'm just telling you what's going on all right, so um, What would I say to them about the hope that's in me and then you know someone who's not really interested in an answer and they just want to make fun of you, do you feel obligated because of first Peter three, do you feel obligated to answer them anyways? I find Christians sometimes in, in the, I've been in the situation too, where someone's trying to manipulate you with scripture, um, uh, or, or even you feel like you, um, you might be manipulating yourself by your misuse of scripture here. So first Peter three 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready. Here's the relevant section here. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And there's more, obviously, related to this. But this idea of always being ready to give a defense. Um, uh, let me show you the ESV, another just another translation. Uh, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Is it meant to be like this sort of strict rule where any time someone says, give me a reason why you're a Christian. You have to answer because that's the law. That's like sort of the unbreakable law or rule regarding giving an answer for why you believe. Imagine for a second, if you would, how this could affect your life if you took it that way. So you're, you're, um, you're in school and there you are in class and the teacher's teaching and your friend, who's just a troll and they know this about you, they turn to you and they go, And after the teacher's like, hey, class, be quiet or you're in trouble. And they turn to you and they say, give me your top reason in detail why you believe in Jesus. And there you're required to talk for the next five minutes, 10 minutes in class because you can't stop. You must give an answer. You always have to give an answer to anyone who asks you. Um, That would not be correct. Or let's make it worse. Let's suppose that you're on the battlefield and there you are. You're hiding as the enemy's coming around and you're totally outnumbered. And there's this, the same class troll who really doesn't like you very much. And he leans over to you and he says, hey, explain to me why you believe in the resurrection. You know, and there you are making noise and talking for the next five minutes and about to be shot and killed by the enemy who will discover you. Obviously, obviously that is not the intention of, of Paul. I think all that's required here is be prepared. Hmm. I don't have to give an answer to everyone who asks me, regardless of circumstances, regardless of whether they're trolls, regardless of whether I'll get shot as a result. Um, Although I'm not, I'm talking about persecution. Yeah, you stand up and you take that, Uh, but folly is different. So, um, so yeah, you just need to be ready to give an answer as in, are you prepared to tell somebody why you believe in Jesus Christian? This is something that apologists have been encouraging people to do for many years. And I like to do apologetics. I'm something of an apologist. There's many who are much better than me at, at this stuff. But they're just trying to encourage Christians, have a reason. Now, maybe your reason is Jesus changed my life. That's fine. That's a good reason. But are you ready to tell someone about it? That's, that's the question. Are you prepared? Maybe your reason is because of the evidence for the resurrection that, that opened your eyes and helped you put your faith and trust in Christ. Maybe your reason was the fulfilled prophecy in scripture and you saw that and went, wow, this is really divinely inspired. God really did this. Maybe your reason was just a, a miracle you experienced. Uh, maybe your reason was uh, something else. Maybe someone just preached the gospel to you and you just, you just knew in your heart that you had sinned. That was your reason. Be ready to share that. You need to be ready, prepared to make a defense or a, a given answer to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you. But the Bible, in addition to saying that, it also says things like, don't cast your pearls before swine. Jesus says this, lest they turn and uh, trample you to pieces. Uh, tear them, trample. I, I'm mixing up the words in that verse for some reason. At any rate, yeah, don't don't necessarily always give people everything they ask for. There was times where Jesus was asked questions and he, he just simply said no. Remember when Jesus and Luke... He's asked, um, uh, tell us uh, by what authority you do these things. This is after Jesus overturns the money changers temples, the money changers temples. That would be quite a feat. The money changers tables in the temple. So Jesus does this. And then he's asked to tell them by what authority he does it. Now, he could easily say the father's authority. But instead, he says, I'll ask you a question. John's baptism, was it from God or from man? And they're afraid of the people, it says, so they won't answer. And they go, we don't know. What this reveals is that their hearts are hard, and they're not interested in truth. So Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Then he tells them a parable that answers their question, but in a way that they can't use against him, about the the, the, vine, the, the vine owner, uh, the owner of the vineyard who sends servants and finally sends who? His son, whom they kill. And obviously Jesus is saying, I'm the son of God. But, uh, but he does it in a way that, that doesn't let them use it against him. I think that you as a Christian can answer tough questions in ways that don't let people use them against you, but still answer them. You can also tell people like you're, you're just, you don't have to say it out loud, but you can be like, you're just a troll. I'm not going to answer you. I'm not going to talk to you. Um, God give you wisdom. There are times for all those different approaches. Constantine says the thief on the cross believed Jesus would come into his kingdom despite knowing that Jesus was going to die. How might that be? Since even the disciples didn't grasp this until the resurrection, um, I, I guess Constantine. My 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 best guess. Obviously, we're we're being asked here to guess at the internal thought process of the of the thief on the cross, right? We're, we're, that's what we're being asked to guess. Um, and I don't think we know the thought process specifically. For instance, did the thief had an actual have in his mind a method by which he thought Jesus would come into his kingdom, or did he just believe that Jesus would come into his kingdom, right? Because he says to the Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So what was, what was the thief thinking? Was he thinking maybe Jesus would come off the cross? Maybe they would try to kill Jesus and it wouldn't work. Maybe that Jesus would die and rise again, or maybe that he was thinking, maybe he had heard like, cause there were people that thought this in like, I think the Qumran community, that there were two messiahs one of them would die and one of them would uh would would uh would not and so that there was these two and, and they believed in a resurrection maybe he thought jesus would be raised in the last day and that he was the messiah i'm just i'm not saying he thought this these are all possibilities maybe he thought jesus is going to be raised in the last day when all of us are raised and he will be shown to be the one that is god's chosen you know that is going to be the ruler Who knows what he thought? Maybe he didn't even have it figured out. Maybe he's on the cross there and he just looks over and he goes, all I know is through what I see, through what I've heard, through the work, the conviction that's going on in my life, convicting me of sin and my awareness of Jesus. All I know is this. He really is who he says he is. He really is God's chosen and I trust him. And I know that my, my, I'm dying. And the one who can do something about it, the one who can save me, from the consequences of my own sins here is Jesus. Like, he knew that much. He may not have even had a a theory about the other stuff. I mean, so, so so I'm just guessing. I'm just theorizing. I don't think the scripture gives us any indication, to my knowledge, as I read those verses. I don't think there's anything there that says, here's what he was thinking. So I just throw out, like, here's like five maybes. Maybe it was something else. I mean, Abraham... If you were to ask like what was Abraham thinking when he went to go sacrifice his son was he thinking God's gonna stop me I' I'll, I'll, I'll pre- pretend I'm gonna do it but God'll stop me before I do it well Hebrews tells us that God uh, uh, that while God stopped his hand and wouldn't let him slay his son yet that Abraham what he thought was God's going to raise my son from the dead which is he makes an an even clearer picture of Jesus the whole thing that goes on between Abraham and Isaac. So he thinks God's going to raise him from the dead, right? And where do we get this from? There's at least a hint in the Old Testament, Genesis, where he says, like, we will return. The lad and I will return after they go and worship. So he was thinking, it seems he was being honest with his wife saying, we will return. He's thinking, I'm going to sacrifice him. But God told me in in Isaac, my seed will be called. So I think he's going to raise him. Now, he was wrong about the details. Interestingly, what he believed about Isaac was true about Jesus. He would get raised. Um, But he believed nonetheless so even if the thief on the cross didn't know the details of the resurrection of jesus and how he would come into his kingdom he believed that jesus would and i think that that was good enough um so interesting question to think about number four julian bond or boone says what can or should i say to a wiccan relative who wants to have seances to reach her dead son she's not a believer so should i just hold my tongue no, please don't hold your tongue, Julianne. know, uh, may God give you wisdom. So please just take what I'm about to tell you as counsel from one person who knows two sentences of your life. <laughs> okay. <laughs> always a danger in providing advice when you know so little. So let me say, you take this as always with my counsel, when I have counsel or questions, always take it with a grain of salt. There may be other factors that you, you're thinking, oh, I should have added that in the question that I didn't know about that would have changed my answer. So you need to have wisdom here. Um, my thought here is, um, you have a, a friend who wants to do seances to reach her dead son is basically doing something to mess with, uh, witchcraft, um, uh, contacting the dead things that God judges people for things that lock people into spiritual darkness and through not only the the scripture that shows the darkness of people doing those things, but also the many testimonies I've heard from people who've been involved in that sort of thing, how they were deceived by demons, how it, how it messed up their lives, how, when they do these seances, they then contact, they think they're contacting dead loved ones who are very possibly just demons impersonating dead loved ones to lie to people, to get them to believe things that ultimately make them think they're fine and they don't need Jesus. And this is, this is all very spiritually dangerous. So I would warn them. I would warn them. I would tell them I would want to do what I could um, and they may not hear you and they may get upset with you but I just want to say you want to value their relationship with God more than your relationship with them This this is the truth of all evangelism evangelism requires that I value your relationship with God more than my relationship with you not that I don't value it it's just a priority I value my relationship with you tremendously but I value your eternal soul and relationship with God that much more and so I will put one at risk for the sake of the other. Then this is, to me, seems very important. How would you approach her? Um, you know, God give you wisdom. There's lots of different ways to do these things. You could take her out to coffee. You could go... Um, just go with scripture say hey let me just read scripture scripture after scripture after scripture sometimes just quoting the bible to people about the uh, the the badness of all of these things you know do not contact the dead this is about this is abomination before god like you just quote the scripture sometimes that's very powerful for people um other times it's sharing them a testimony from a former Wiccan who you find christian former Wiccan online and you go here look at this person's testimony please 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 check this out promise me you'll look at this it's so important to me if you love me i want you to consider this um God give you wisdom on how to approach that. Uh, Noble Penguin says, Who was the man in Mark 14, 51 to 52? Could it be that this was somehow Jesus himself escaping as an unbeliever? How should I approach my readings? Any questions I should keep in mind? Okay, so I'm assuming you're an unbeliever. So this is, this is, uh, I get more excited when I talk to someone who's not a Christian. Um, So I'm glad you asked a question. So Mark 14, 51 and 52. Who is the young man? Um, I actually have a, a, a Bible study through the Gospel of Mark, Noble Penguin. Uh, I would encourage you to check it out. It is perfect for a non believer. I mean, and I mean that. I go through all kinds of st- tough questions, evidence based stuff, um, questions like where maybe a scholar over here is like saying, Mark got this fact wrong about history or geography. And I go into all the defenses of the biblical account um, in detail. Um, so I, I really would encourage you to check it out. I will link it down below, but my Mark series, you're already reading the Bible. You're asking questions. I have a whole section in my teaching on Mark 14, 51 and 52, where I talk about who's this young man, where I answer those kinds of questions. So let's read it. Uh, a, and a young man, this is, oh, by the way, for background for everybody, Jesus is in the garden of, of Gethsemane. He, he's here being betrayed. And they're taking him away to prison before his crucifixion, right? To trial and eventually crucifixion. So when a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. We know nothing else about this young man, but one thing we know for sure, it can't possibly be Jesus, right? This young man followed who? Jesus then they seized who? Jesus. Or they, me, they, they seized uh, him, the young man, and he left. He ran away. And then they led Jesus to the high priest. And you would have to say that what Mark is doing is um, something that nobody would ever do, where he is including two verses of the true history, and then lies for the entire rest of the book. Right? Like, This is, if if you study Mark carefully, Mark is way smarter than that. (laughs) um, This is, this is, is it possible? Like this is where someone goes, well, isn't it possible? Isn't it in the realm of possibility? And be like, but isn't it possible that you're just a brain in a vat? And that all your thoughts are just stimulated by like electrodes going into your brain and none of this is even happening. Isn't it possible? That English doesn't mean any of the things you think it means and you've been just misunderstanding everybody in ways your whole life that just conveniently seemed to work out but yet left you knowing everything wrong in the world isn't that possible but like the mere possibility is pointless unless it involves probability zero probability here um, so the young man who is he uh, there's different theories on this one theory is that the young man is mark himself uh, perhaps this is Mark. He's he's not a disciple. He's just a random guy. And this could be the way that the author, Mark, who was probably recording um, what Peter had been teaching, what Peter had said, he's just the one writing it down, that he may have been saying, oh yeah, I w- this is my way of saying, hey, I was there too. Um, and this is what happened to me. This is not, it, you know, it comes off as comedy. And I get that it comes off as comedy to us because we don't, we, we read this passage not knowing the gravity of the moment. Jesus is being betrayed Okay, that's kind of not comedy there. Um, people are in danger. There is a chance that they'll be killed, and this young man who was following Jesus, he leaves, and it, there's a sense of even a, a shamefulness there that he fled and ran away naked. It what I think it does is it helps communicate the terror of the moment when Jesus was betrayed, when there, to the disciples. They're at the apex of Jesus's movement in their minds. He is about to take over. Even though he's like, I'm going to be crucified. They don't get it. They think he, maybe he's speaking metaphorically. Maybe it's a parable. Whatever reason, they just don't get it. They're like, the Messiah is going to enter into his kingdom. He's going to take over Israel. This is what the popular people are thinking. And then he's going to lead a revolution against Rome. And he's going to establish God's kingdom. And, and we're gonna we're going to have more glory than in Solomon's reign. In, in Israel. This is what they're thinking because they have the eyes on the things of men and they don't understand the plan of God for your, for your sins to be forgiven, not just for your kingdom to get big. And, and so there they are at this apex. They're like, man, he just overturned the money changers tables. He's over here doing all these things. He's teaching, look at how many people are following him. This is it. This is the moment. Our revolution is coming. There's plenty of people feeling that way. What the garden leads us to is this point where all these expectations suddenly start just breaking entirely. Jesus has been predicting throughout the book. This is not what I'm going to do. They don't get it because they, before he was even born, the people have messianic expectations that are not just biblical. They're cultural tons of things they're expecting Messiah to do. And they never got, they never got shaken free until the death of Christ until his death and resurrection. So then this is like that, the big corrective moment where boom, now you run away in terror, confused, naked, all this stuff. Um, anyway, I think it's a powerful thing. Um, yeah. But check out my, my Mark Bible study verse by verse through the whole book. I think I think you'll, get, you'll really enjoy it, to be honest. Noble Penguin. And I pray that the Lord leads you to himself and that God works not only in your mind, but in your heart to lead you and direct you to the truth and the goodness and the salvation that there is in Jesus Christ. That you could be like that thief on the cross who's like, I don't know all everything, but I know that I believe in him. All right. It's question number six from David Drake. Is there a process um, you go through to understand parallel prophecies, parallel prophecies? For example, 2 Samuel 7, 14 seems to be about Jesus, but clearly not completely because he doesn't commit iniquity. Thank you. Okay. Let's look at the passage. Okay. Okay. Let me back up. We're gonna have to read a larger section because this is this is where God is talking about um, about the descendants of David um, and 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 it is Messianic. It's Messianic in nature, but is it really directly about Jesus? So I'm gonna read it in, in context. We'll read it straight through. That way, you guys can feel the same thing the questioner feels here on this issue. David feels uh, about this. Like, wait, I thought it was about Jesus. Then I get to verse 14. I'm like, huh. Okay, now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, um, okay, he's like, hey, I want to build a temple for God. And Nathan's like, go do it. And then God tells Nathan, like, no, I didn't say do that. He doesn't get to do that. He's a man of blood. And then Nathan comes and he's like, yeah, no, you don't get to do that. Okay, let just skip ahead a little bit. Um, now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel and I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them it's, David was like I'm going to build a house for God God's like look I'm the one who's going to do these things for you so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that i appointed judges over my people israel and i will give you rest from all your enemies moreover the lord declares to you that the lord will make you a house he's like i want to make a house for the lord and god's like no i'm going to make you a house david i'm going to be building you a house when your days are fulfilled And you lie down with your fathers I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom now that sounds like Jesus doesn't it but it could also be Solomon so what is it let's let's read on he shall build a house for my name he shall build a house for my name well that could be Jesus and Solomon right because Solomon builds the actual temple but Jesus he says, tear this down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And he's talking about his body. So he builds the temple and the church is the temple of the living God such that it replaces the need, the need for a physical temple in Jerusalem. Um, so which one is it? And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now well, forever could mean for a long time. Um, forever could mean eternally. But the throne is ultimately, Solomon sat on the throne, but Jesus ultimately sits on the throne as well. So that could be about both. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Again, this could be about both. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. That's when, when he commits iniquity. Okay, well that can't be Jesus. And this is where you suddenly go, okay, well this, like, how is that about Jesus? Um, I think that you look at this passage, there's so much that's like Jesus, but but it's directly about Solomon. When he commits iniquity, There I will discipline him with the rod of the sons, with uh, the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will never depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And that's what Nathan said to David. Um, So how do I look at this? Well, I I look at this as um, typology more than direct prophecy. Now I think typology is a type of prophecy because it's a way in which God foretells us what's going to happen. But uh, what uh, the term I've used and maybe this is helpful to people, hopefully it doesn't confuse them, is one to one prophecy as in here's a prediction and then here's the fulfillment. So we have this like Ezekiel's destruction of Tyre is one to one prophecy. Um, this is a prophecy about a specific event, boom, it happens. Then we have what I would say is typology. And there's a lot of typology in the Old Testament, okay? There's there's one-to-one prophecies, even about Jesus, but there's also a lot of typology. And sometimes the two blur together. So like Psalm 22, this is where typology and prophecy blur together, such that it's, in my mind, more along the lines of plain old prophecy, but... There's typological elements in it, so I, I'm just saying it's it's there's a continuum there. God's not constrained to like only have one kind of literature, only one kind of expression. Uh, in the in the fullness of the Old Testament, it speaks of Christ, and typology is one of those ways. So Solomon is the son of of David, and the Messiah is the son of David. the The typology of the son of David was understand understood by the messianic expectations of the Jews before Jesus shows up. When they call him son of David, while Solomon was initially the son of david they think the phrase son of david refers to the coming messiah as well so they see that there's this sort of bleed through from one to the other but when you see what david and solomon do with the temple it's it's neat stuff so the so david he actually plans the temple that's what this passage is about the son's going to build the temple david plans the temple he he gets it ready but solomon's the one who actually builds the temple david Plans it. Solomon builds it. So the father sends the son and the son in Jesus's case He does all the things the father prepared for him to do He's like I only do the things the father shows me. So he's the one following the direction. So to speak David is not the one to actually build the temple because it was built with his life has been stained with blood so to speak um solomon though his life was sustained with peace this is to picture jesus as doing the the building of the the temple the body of christ the salvation of souls through peace and not through violence towards others he will suffer but he won't cause them suffering he won't cause pain there's all these neat things that go on between the two Um, Jesus, however, did not commit iniquity in verse 14, but there's a connection such that when we committed iniquity, Jesus was disciplined, right? Jesus was the one who suffered when we committed iniquity. Where do we get that? We get that from like Isaiah, um, Isaiah 53. You know, we're, we're reading about this Messiah character who he has done no harm. He's done no sin, but he suffers for the sins of others as a sacrifice and atonement for them. And it's this powerful, powerful stuff. So I'd say it's directly about Solomon, but it's definitely typological about Jesus. Maybe that helps. Number seven, uh, Jared. Oh, by the way, back up real quick. I have a study on Matthew and how Matthew uses the term fulfilled because he uses it for both prophecy, direct prophecy, as well as typology. He uses it for both. I will link that below as well. And it's 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 in my Jesus in the Old Testament series. And it's called something like um, why you don't understand Prophecy? Oh, that's probably not the right title. Something like that. I will find it and I'll link it below. If a, if a mod can find it, you can link it down there as well. My, my modly friends. All right. Question seven. Jared Matthew says, do the different persons of the Trinity have different personalities? Would God, the Father, Jesus, or the Holy Spirit act in a different way than the others in a given situation? Um, I feel like I tread, I'm treading on a holy ground when I answer these kinds of questions and I feel like some of them are over my own head. Okay. So, um, different personalities uh, as a, in a sense, you'd have to, you'd have to say yes to in depending on what you mean by personalities. But I think what you're asking about is more like, um, if I told a joke would forgive you guys the crudeness of this, this way of putting it, is it possible that like the father would laugh and think it was funny and the son would not? Right. Okay, I I wouldn't have a problem if that was the case. I, I just don't, I feel like I'm treading on holy ground and I just don't want to go there. So would God, the Father, or Jesus, or the Holy Spirit act in a different way than the others in a given situation? Um, here, here's why I my, I have trepidation. Because some people, many, many, many people, I should say, in trying to answer tough questions about the Trinity, not taking the time to think it through, they delve right into false teaching about the Trinity. They go, ah, well, I have a solution. The Trinity's like this. And you know, God's very nature is like this. Why? Because it. I, I was asked a question and it felt like a good answer and I just said it. And they didn't think through the implications of what they said. And so then that causes a lot of issues and problems. I think it's better for people to say, here's what I know from scripture about the, the Trinity. Here's a question that I don't know how to answer that way. I'll just let it hang. I'll just let it sit there. Yeah. Um, in another sense, though, uh, Scripture does tell us that God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit act in different ways in a given situation. So right now, the Holy Spirit indwells me as a Christian. That is the most amazing fact of reality. I'm glad to be reminded of that today. It's very encouraging to my heart. The Holy Spirit indwells me. God with me. The whole, the the Son. The son of God, Jesus, God, the son, he intercedes for me, assuring my access to God, the father, assuring my constant state of forgiveness and grace that I stand in. That's Jesus's specific way of interacting right now. And the father, he hears my prayers. The father answers and, and the things that I pray in the name of Jesus. Like here we have like these differences that exist in the way God's interacting with me. Is that contingent upon different personalities in in every sense? And I, I don't want to go too far with it, but there are some thoughts. I will ramble on to the next question. Katie's online name says, Every time you answer a question about rewards in heaven, I can't help but think of the LDS levels of heaven. How do I debate with them when they use rewards as the basis for their belief about there being different levels of heaven? I think, Katie... Um, Uh, It seems to me that somewhere along the line, somebody is trying to get you to say, or they're saying that if there are different rewards in heaven, then there are different levels of heaven like the LDS has. That's kind of a big deal. Um, That'd be like me saying, uh, gosh, what's a good analogy for this? what's a good analogy for this <laughs> i can't think of an analogy usually i'm like poop analogy no nothing nothing um yeah Th- that's like saying okay in a hospital um if there are different treatments for different patients therefore there are different uh, buildings for different patients i mean maybe there are but that doesn't follow logically you they could all be in one giant building they could all be in the same building they could be in separate buildings just saying there's different treatments doesn't mean there's different buildings. And if there was the same treatment for every patient, if you had some kind of crazy hospital that just gave the same treatment for every patient, they could still have different buildings. One does not meet, lead to the other. That, that, it's just a, it's, it's a non sequitur. So I would suggest you put it back on them and say, prove to me that different rewards equals different levels of heaven like the LDS describes. Another thing you can do, though, is push back on the LDS levels of heaven theology by looking at what scripture actually says about heaven And looking historically what the Jews actually said about different levels of heaven. So the levels of heaven in historically speaking, when I was, I was looking into this, when I was teaching through Mark, I'll mention that again, um, uh, but it is the case. I was looking through this when I was teaching through Mark and these levels of heaven in Jewish historical views, some of them talked about three levels, some talked about five, but what they had consistently was all the levels up until the last one were just what you and me would think of as normal parts of the universe. Okay, so you've got like the earth. You've got the sky. You've got higher in the sky. You've got even higher in the sky. Okay, you've got like where clouds are. Oh, you've got where birds fly. Oh, you got maybe where planets are and the sun and things like that. These are l- levels of heaven because they would use the term heaven to refer to the sky, not just to these sort of levels that, that um, uh, the LDS church talks about. So that when Paul says, I was caught up to the third heaven... He means not the sky where the birds are. I was caught up to third heaven. Not the sky where the birds are. There's your first level. Not like where planets and the moon and stars and stuff are. There's your second level. But I was caught up to where God is. That's what he's talking about there. So this is the biblical understanding, but the Mormon church has like the terrestrial, telestial, celestial, these three different levels. And um, there's there's no grounding for this. When you look in Revelation and you see heaven, uh, the new Jerusalem comes down. This isn't a description of one location of where some people are. This is where everybody is. God himself dwells there on the earth, the new earth, in the new Jerusalem with his people. He is their light. Everyone gets to experience the glory of God in that regard. You don't have these separations. You don't have levels where Jesus will visit you sometimes on the bottom level of heaven. You know, you Christians like Mike Winger, who, you know, ta- actually I might get out of darkness because I teach against the LDS church. So, But let's say you guys who don't o- openly, uh, you know, advocate against the LDS church, you're on this telestial kind of earthy type experience. Jesus might come and visit, you know, one of these other levels. Is he, Does he even visit the bottom one? It's been a while since I looked into it. He visits one of them. Maybe it's the bottom one. Um, but that's not the description that we get in um, in the Bible. No, no. We're just, we're with him. So, yeah. Anyway, there's a few things. Push back. Push back on them. Say, prove to me that different rewards means different levels. Like, everybody gets to be in the presence of Jesus. Read Revelation. Read the New Jerusalem coming down and how God himself is the light. That, that this, is, this is it. There isn't another location. Um, nor... For those who get to the highest level of heaven, they believe that they, of course, become their own gods. They become their own gods. They become a god where they get to populate their own plan. This is Mormon theology one oh one, right? This is this is this is important Mormon theology that a lot of Mormons are not aware of because it's weird because modern Mormons do not have the the chutzpah of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and the people who founded the religion. They were not ashamed of these things. They didn't hide them. They didn't. They thought this was like important teachings they believe. A lot of modern LDS don't feel that way. They, They feel somewhat ashamed of these things or they hide them or they otherwise try to talk around them. Okay. But Mormon theology says that you, if you get to this highest level of heaven, you're married in the temple, you're sealed for time and all eternity. And then you get to have you and your wives plural Hopefully you have plural wives according to Brigham Young you really should be a polygamist Ideally you have multiple wives you get married in the temple and you might think modern Mormonism doesn't do that anymore well for now they don't I-, I wouldn't be surprised if they brought it back the way that. US is moving towards sexual depravity Mormonism will say hey polygamy why not <laughs> right <laughs> but, uh, but they still practice spiritual polygamy in the church this is still going on this all relates to the highest level of heaven because if I get married and my wife dies, Then I get married to a second wife and we're sealed for time and all eternity in the temple. Then she dies. I get married to a third wife and she dies. Now I have how many wives in heaven? Three. Three. So if you're, if you really want to be a good Mormon, marry really old women so you can get lots of wives in heaven. Um, At any rate, you then die and you go to your celestial experience where you get to now have your three wives, so to speak, or however many you've got. And you get to make spirit babies and you need to make lots and lots of them because these babies are going to populate your new planet where you're going to be the god of that world so they can worship you this is the old lie you shall be as god this this is this is the highest level of heaven this is the highest achievement this is what joseph smith gets according to mormonism is in mormonism is not joseph smith i say this because i know a lot of mormons uh, push against this like it's not reality like you have to convince them to believe what they're supposed to believe before you can tell them that what they believe is not true um it becomes a very difficult battle. Modern Mormonism is, is swings wildly liberal uh, in regards to their theology, that in ways that makes it difficult to talk to. But, but Joseph Smith, as far as Joseph Smith's teaching is concerned, he dies. He's got a whole bunch of wives in heaven, whole dozens of them, and they are making babies for eternity. And then he's going to populate his own planet. And now he gets to be worshipped, and the process starts all over again. Um, so, where does the Bible talk about that level of heaven? <laughs> um nowhere nowhere because it doesn't exist no we're all just in the presence of christ question number nine becca whipple says can a christian still struggle with submitting completely to god or is that a symptom that you're not truly saved becca um you can okay from my own experience if you can't have that struggle then and that means you're not saved becca that means i'm not saved that means i'm not saved and that means every Christian I've known really well, really well, like where you get to know sort of some of their struggles, then they're not saved either. I think that a, a regular battle is assumed in scripture when Paul says like, um, uh, crucify the flesh, mortify the flesh rather. You have to die to your flesh, put off the flesh. Why, why is he telling Christians to put off the flesh if Christians simply don't have a struggle? It doesn't make sense, does it? When we have all these verses about Christians, don't do this, don't do that, do not it's only because it's something that Christians may struggle with. And so I think that it's understandable to have a struggle. And it's totally normal, I think, as a Christian experience to feel like you are desperately in need of God's incredible grace all the time, and that you totally have God's incredible grace all the time because of Jesus. There are times where someone's life is in such rebellion to God that it makes you go, is their faith statement genuine? Do they really believe what they say? They believe about Jesus. Is this a dead faith or is this a living faith? James talks about that. Um, James chapter two. But I don't think that the solution is oh, so I have to be a sinless Christian and then I'm and then I can have confidence. I'm saved. No, no, no. You have to be a genuine Christian. James is about genuine faith versus fake faith. In one way to spot it is a wildly rebellious life. Um, um, how do you define this? I, I don't know, but. But yeah, it, look at your life and ask, is is my faith genuine? Uh, I think I believe. Does my life reflect that? Do I expect struggles? Yes. Do I still have compromises? Yes. Am I sinless? No. Um, but if, if you're not a Christian because of those things, then neither am I. Too legit to quit. Hey, hey. I added the hey, hey there. Who are the two witnesses in the book of Revelation? And is it possible for them not... For them to be people that are walking the earth today that are not in the Bible. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't know. I I think it's one of those things I'm always interested in, like the the um, the conjecture about the two witnesses. Let's let's look at the let's look at some scripture on this and then we'll talk briefly about the conjecture. I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy one thousand two hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies and if anyone wants to harm them he must be killed in this manner they have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire when they finish their testimony the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them overcome them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city which is spiritually called sodom and egypt where also our Lord was crucified, so it's Jerusalem. Then those from the people's tribes and tongues and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days. Um, and now their dead bodies will be put into graves. Uh, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Oh, but they come back, right? They're resurrected. Now, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. And then other things happen. So they come, they prophesy, they can uh, shoot fire. They can kill people with fire, whether that's lightning or something else. Um, They die and they get resurrected. So some people think that these witnesses are Old Testament saints come back. And one of the arguments for this is, hey, we got two people in the Old Testament that didn't actually die normal deaths right? We have, um, Enoch in Genesis who it says he walked with God and then he was not for God took him. <laughs> like, <what? laughs> like, like we've been asking questions about Enoch forever. The Jews have too. They even wrote like fanciful stuff about him in some cases. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Enoch. Okay. The, who's the, who's the other one? Well, Elijah, Elijah got caught up in a chariot was taken to be with the Lord as he, as he tossed his mantle down and then Elisha took over that ministry. And so we have these two people who never died. Now, some people say, well, how do you know these are the two witnesses? And they go, well, Hebrew says it's appointed to man once to die and then the resurrection. And Enoch and Elijah didn't die. Therefore, they're the two witnesses. Further, Elijah and uh, Mount Carmel and the whole bringing fire down, like that feels a little bit like this sort of thing where people who come against them, they get, f- they get destroyed by fire. Okay, so th- that sounds like a compelling case. And then you start to think, well... Okay, so Hebrews does it mean to say every single human must die? This is the rule, or are we taking Hebrews too woodenly, trying to stretch its meaning beyond what it's saying? I think we are, because there are people when Jesus actually comes, uh, where where we um we are changed, right? We shall not, brethren, we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, right? We we will be we will be transformed. It says there we won't all die, so Hebrews shouldn't be stretched to mean. Every human has to die or else Hebrews doesn't work, um, that verse. So then you go, okay, so why are we relating these two to the witnesses? Now it feels, let's just say there's less connections. There's less connections. Other people think Moses might be the witness. And they say, well, you know, God disputed, not God, uh, there was an angelic battle or dispute over the body of Moses we read about in Jude. And God himself buried Moses we read about in um, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy? Yeah, I think, um, and, uh, and so God himself buries him. So maybe there was a special concern for the body of Moses such that it was because God would one day bring Moses back and there he is, he would be brought back as one of the witnesses. So they go, well, maybe Moses and Elijah or Moses and Enoch, but I am personally not convinced that these two witnesses have to be anybody from the old Testament. Could they not just be two witnesses that maybe even are alive today that's possible or maybe they aren't born yet and maybe there's some time in the distant future uh, again i'm a premillennial so i do think that while there's a lot of symbolism in revelation here that we're reading lots and lots of symbolism very clearly symbolism that doesn't mean it doesn't represent real truths and real things i think that these are things that will happen in the future so to answer your question um who were the two witnesses in the book of revelation i don't know and I have more questions than answers on that. Is it possible for them to be people that are walking the earth today that are not in the Bible? It's possible, but if that leads you down the path of trying to figure out who they are, I think you're making huge mistakes. Not like you're gonna lose your faith or something. I just think it's a really big mistake because now you are gonna be completely relying on you, literally guessing your way through to your own version of spiritual revelation. And that's a very you know, sketchy process. It's entirely possible, Look us it this way. A hundred years ago, if you thought the two witnesses could be alive today, you would have been wasting all your time. 200 years ago, you would have been wasting all your time. 300, 400, 709 years ago, you've been wasting. 812 years ago, you would have been wasting your time. 1,275 years ago, you would have been a complete waste of time. 1,900 years ago, <laughs> I'm just saying, don't, don't spend your time with that. All right, Sandra Arian, Arian says, Someone argued with me. That because of Matthew 12, 36, every idle word, all jokes and fun conversations are sinful and that Jesus never spoke a casual, in a casual, non-serious way. Is this true? Let's look at the text. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Hmm. Let's back up just a little bit. Um, Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you'll be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Now, let's look at that word, that phrase, idle word, in another translation here. That was the New King James. Here's the ESV. Um, I tell you on the Day of Judgment people will give account for every careless word that they speak. That's interesting. Um, let's look at the NIV. Everyone will have to give account on the Day of Judgment for every empty word they have spoken. That's interesting. So the, the nature of the word seems to be careless word, empty word, idle word. Um, does that refer to joking? is is humor in that category well while i don't off the top of my head i I don't i don't immediately think of a joke that jesus made in scripture there may be maybe five minutes from now i'll go oh yeah yeah there's that and that but there are definitely jokes in scripture and they come not only from servants of god like elijah who was joking and mocking the false prophets but they come from god Himself. God jokes actually in scripture. This doesn't happen super often, right? But it does happen where God is actually mocking like false prophets and uh, idol worship And read Isaiah around chapter 40, 41, 42 where there's actually mockery of these different of these different uh different people. So what what are we to take of this? Um well we, you you'd have to say that joking isn't an isn't always an idle word or a careless word or an empty word. That would be that would be the the application. You'd you'd have to say that. Maybe joking has a purpose. Maybe joking has an intent. Maybe humor is valuable in and of itself. That God gives us laughter to make the heart glad, which is what Proverbs says. Let me actually let me share with you that scripture. but I'm not finding it, (laughs) which is, which is itself funny. Um, I'm curious now. I mean the closest thing I'm finding off the top you know this is live so I'm just sharing with you what I get um, Psalm 126 uh, it says when the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion we were like those who dream then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was with singing <clears throat> and they said among the nations the Lord has done great things for them uh, the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad um, here we get like a, a celebratory laughter um, laughter that's just so lighthearted and, and enjoying things um You guys probably put it in the live chat verses I'm thinking of that I just can't find. So, so anyways, laughter cannot, you know, and joking cannot inherently be bad. God does it himself. What did Jesus then mean when he says every idle word, every careless word, as we read about those things? Well, in context, he's talking about specifically statements that are made against Jesus. And this often is the case where people who want to scoff against God, against Christ, against his truth, they do so with with um light speech speech that they, they they feel is very light that's actually very harsh oh well if god's real then blah 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 blah. like the, those kinds of statements that feel like they're just throwaway statements they're just statements people make well if god's you know if god's good why where did he outlaw slavery in the old testament and there are statements like this that these people will actually stand before god one day and be judged for that's what jesus is saying like hey your heart is speaking where your mouth speaking what's coming from your heart. And you will, you will do it with every word. I think the reason why he adds the phrase idle word and careless word is even the words that you don't remember, even the words that you don't, you don't, you don't care about, even the words you just said casually, cause you just didn't have anything else to say. You will be judged for those things. It's not to say that, um, you can't like go talk to your spouse about something that's kind of pointless because you're just making conversation. I'm not, it's not saying that. I think it's suggesting that it's, if those casual careless words were actually bad, even though you thought they were nothing, they were no big deal, God's actually gonna deal with you for that too. Um, But I I joke all the time. Like right here, my shirt says stay coo and it has a pigeon on it, right? Yesterday I opened my closet and there was a new shirt there, a few new shirts my wife got me. Stay coo, that is an absolutely pointless phrase on a relatively pointless shirt. I think it's funny. I don't think there's any judgment for that. Um, Yeah, let's go to question number 12. Shannon says, do we still need to forgive others if they don't ask for forgiveness? My grandma believes that as Christians, we don't forgive unless the other person repents and asks for forgiveness. Um, Shannon, I'm gonna say something that a lot of people are gonna have a hard time with. I think there is some truth to this. I don't think it's easy to explain. It's not blanket truth, but I'm gonna explain it in the way that I understand. Forgiveness is not fully accomplished unless a person is repentant and restored. That's exampled in the gospel itself. Jesus on the cross, he's got it, you know, he, I like what one pastor used to say uh, that I had used to say, you know, he's got this cross posture. Jesus has his arms out on the cross. In, in a sense, it's like a metaphor for saying Jesus is welcoming. He's like, I'm dying for your sin. I'm, I'm paying for your sin and I'm off. Did he forgive everybody? No, he offered forgiveness to everybody. How would they receive the forgiveness? There was an attitude of repentance. Wow. Then Ephesians tells us, forgive one another, even as Christ forgave you. So does that mean that I, I don't have to forgive unless they repent? Well, in a sense, yes, but this is so quickly abused because they forget the first half of what I said. I die for your sin. Jesus, you know, here he dies for our sin, he suffers for our sin, and he offers us complete forgiveness. Is the offer there? That's what I want to know. Um, is the offer there? If the offer is not there for forgiveness towards somebody else, if you're not hopeful that they'll come, then then I'm not saying oh, oh, you evil person. I'm what I'm suggesting is this, like at least this much. You have work to do to bring yourself to a Christ likeness on this issue. You do need to do it. It's very important. Unforgiveness is like a, it's a much bigger deal to Jesus than it is to me and you usually. Um, so, you know, he gives the Lord's prayer and he goes, if you don't forgive men, I won't forgive you. But how do we forgive? We forgive the way Jesus did. Um, yes, I suffered, but I've dealt with the suffering I've, I've, I've experienced under your sins because of your sins that I've suffered and I am offering you forgiveness but if you're going to continue in your sinful ways, that doesn't mean I have to restore the relationship. I w- I'd like to; it'd be nice. But forgiveness does not always equal restoration, and the offer for, for forgiveness does not always equal the accomplishment of forgiveness. So, when you when I read this again, do I still need to forgive others if they don't ask for forgiveness? You need to be in a place where you are offering it. I think, All right? Where you at least your heart is. I I let it go. I'm I've let it go. Now, maybe it's still not really let go between us because it, you haven't repented. You're still in denial. You're still acting out in the same ways and adding more sin on top of it all. Um, but in my heart, it's dealt with. And so you said, my grandma believes that as Christians, we don't forgive unless other the other person repents and asks for forgiveness. I would say, does she forgive on her half? <laughs> Is the forgiveness worked through in her heart? The answer should be yes there. And then. Um, So it, so it can't be, well, I'm going to hold a grudge until they repent. I don't think that that's the right attitude. I want to have that cross posture. That's what Jesus calls me to do. That offer of grace, that offer of forgiveness and that desire to see those things happen. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Question 13, Robert Thies says, as a YouTube pastor, do you have any suggestions for content you would like to see Christians make? I'm a seminary, I'm in seminary and I think about making videos, but wonder what I should create if I did um uh robert the, the here, here's the thing about youtube it is a total blank slate you can make anything you could make weird little cartoon humored things that are just meant to like teach concepts from the book of proverbs like if you're good at that if you're good at humor and good at cartoons and uh, like script writing and all that stuff you can make videos that are just you could do a bible news channel where all you do is talk about news about the bible and different discoveries and things like that and if you do it well if you're good at it you will you will do great you could do verse by verse studies you could do apologetics you could do debates with atheists you could do debates with other religions you could do um Um, documentaries where you're like sort of going deep into the history of different religious groups that are false religions just to drive people to Jesus Christ and point them to the true religion of Jesus. You could do so many things. You could tell stories that teach biblical principles and you could literally just stand there and tell a story like you're some storyteller of old, but you have the right voice for it and you've got the right style and people just enjoy listening. You could play video games while, um, while occasion, excuse me, Occasionally answering questions about Christianity and stuff like that. Like there, there's anything is possible. Here's what I would suggest. Look at your skills, your abilities, and then develop your your ideas for, for YouTube content from there. I am a teacher. This is what I'm good at. I'm not good at these like super carefully scripted videos. I'm like, I'm good at teaching. Okay. It doesn't mean that's not me being arrogant. I, I just want to be aware of what I'm skilled at. So I can bless the body of Christ. And I've, what I've done is I've taken what I'm best at for me, for my skill set, And I've done that on, on YouTube. Um, that's what I would say. You might be like, but there's no real niche for the kind of content I want to create. That's okay. You can create a niche. There wasn't much of a niche for the content I was making when I started. Um, and now there is. And so we've not just me, other Christian creators too. We've created a niche on YouTube by just making the content that we thought we should make. Um, and that can be done. It's a lot of work. It's going to take longer than you expect, most likely. Um, but if you're good at it, your channel will grow faster than mine did. <laughs> All right, let's go to the next question. Uh, okay, so parent warning on this one. If you've got kids, you might want to skip ahead or mute or go um, give them get them a hot dog or something. <laughs> okay, so here's the question. Help me, Jesus says, hello. Do you have any advice on how to come out, for lack of a better word, to my Christian parents about being same-sex attracted and addicted to pornography. I know Christianity's true. Well, let me tell you this. First off, you say, help me Jesus, which is your YouTube name. Um, you say same-sex attracted, whereas almost anybody in the current generation would say um, homosexual. But you see there is, you probably see that there's a difference between the two. Homosexual is saying, here's my identity. I'm discovering, a lot of people when they say it, they mean, here's my identity. I'm discovering who I'm supposed to be. This is, this is who I was made to be. Um, that's, that's what we often see, not always, uh, often see with the, the, the LGBT stuff is like, I'm lesbian because that's kind of like how I'm wired and I can't help it. And that's who I'm supposed to be all along. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, homosexual for the same reason, or I'm, let's say I'm transgender because I'm like a boy trapped in a girl's body or a girl trapped in a boy's body. That's who I am supposed to, they, they all come from the place of an identity that they're discovering because of a desire they have. I desire this. Therefore, that's who I am. You didn't do that. You didn't do that. You said, I'm same-sex attracted. That already, you, you've, you you through that one phrase, I'm same-sex attracted, you have undone a whole bunch of the bad worldview beliefs that are invading and infecting our country and our culture right now by just saying, it's an attraction. I'm not claiming this is my identity and who I'm supposed to be. It's a desire I have that I don't want. And in that, we could we could couple it with so many other desires that christians can have and say look it it, it was it was the pro-gay movement that elevated homosexuality as to being this one sin that's different than all the others except they no longer called it a sin they called it an identity and you're just saying okay look i'm same-sex attracted um so i just want to say props for you like that was major worldview work that you did just to write that phrase i think and so very good for you um how, how would you explain this to your parents um I, I, I'm I more along the lines of like a rip the bandaid off kind of <laughs> personally thing. Um, but you may find that you can't just say it out loud. Like there's two options that I, that I can immediately think of. One is you sit down and you say, there's some things I want to tell you. Um, I love you. I 100% believe in Jesus. So you, you, you're already cutting off the confusion they might have because you're like, I believe in the Lord. This is not anything like that. But I have have some real struggles right now that I want you to know about. If you frame it like that, then I think they'll be ready to listen to you better. You know, I don't know really know where your parents are at. Um, hopefully, their first thing they'll do is tell you how much they love you, and how much they care about you, and they're so grateful that you would open up and tell them these things. I hope that that's how they respond. If not, give them time. Give them time. They may have to work through this, and they may not have the most the best gut reaction. Try to be gracious to them, um, as I hope they're gracious to you. Another thing to do though, if you if you worry that as soon as you open your mouth, like you're just going to stumble over your words, you're not going to say it right write them a letter, sit them down, say, I need you guys to read this. It it says that what I need to tell you right now, but I'm worried I won't get the words out. Right. And just, you give them the letter and this gives you plenty of time to sit down and look at it and think about it. So, yeah, I I think it's a healthy thing that you want to talk to them about these things, unless they're like really bad, (laughs) it'll probably go well, (laughs) unless there's something really messed up with them. Um, in which case God give you the grace and the patience and the wisdom to deal with them. I think it'll probably go better than you think though. Um, at least if they're listening to the Holy Spirit at all, God help you through it. Have courage. You've got a good perspective on this already, I think, just from the tiny bit you wrote. So help me, Jesus. Uh, I'm going to say, uh, Jesus, Jesus, help you. May He guide you and help you through this, and help you to see that um, what feels like a, a bondage you can't overcome, you can. Here, here's a uh, a resource you might want to check out. Check out a guy named Christopher Yuan. Y U O N Christopher Yuan he has written a book on this topic i can't remember the name of the title of the book but you might want to check out his content Christopher Yuan just search it on Amazon or something and, and you should see uh, i'd recommend you consider looking at that All right number 15 Benji Ahuja says what is a non calvinist way of understanding regeneration in Titus 3:5 Titus 3:5 Here's the esv it says he speaking of god um saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the holy spirit so as sometimes happens i'll read these verses that someone's like hey how do you respond to a calvinist view of this verse and i read it and i go what well where's the calvinist part <laughs> Um, where's the Calvinist part let me back up and read a few more verses when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness I 100% agree I don't get saved by my works but but, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal and renewal of the Holy Spirit 100% agree whom we poured on us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior, so that we being justified by his grace, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, see, Calvinism has a particular view of regeneration. And the the view of regeneration is, as R.C. Sproul put it, um, regeneration precedes faith. Now, there's debate over like, is that precede chronologically or just logically? And like, let's just skip that discussion for right now and say, look, regeneration precedes faith and is the cause of faith. So the belief on Calvinism is that you, uh, and this is a central belief. This is not really an optional belief, I don't think, for a Calvinist. If there's a Calvinist out there who doesn't believe it, I, I haven't encountered them. So. Um, so regeneration is something that happens to you when the Holy Spirit brings you to life, so to speak. And as a result of this, you believe in Jesus. So the causality there is God causes your faith. He causes you to have faith. Now there's particulars you could debate about and all that, but but that is the causality. Regeneration causes your faith. Here the scripture talks about regeneration. God saved us, not by my works, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I, I totally agree. But how does that say that regeneration precedes faith? It just doesn't. Now some would say... Um, well, Mike, if you believe in Jesus before you're regenerated, then you did something good, didn't you? And I'd be like, well, it's hard to argue against that. Like, I mean, it's good that I believed in Jesus. Yes. Okay. So you did something good. So then you, you merited somehow you merited your salvation. It was somehow on your view, Mike is somehow by works. Because you believed, you were you did something good. Now some Calvinists say this; not every Calvinist says, it, but some might say it with this passage. I'm trying to think of how they might use this passage to prove regeneration precedes faith. Um, and so, my response to this would be: um, I have a whole video on this, <laughs> where where I talk about um, a problem or why I think Calvinism is unbiblical. And I would I would encourage you guys to check it out, uh, you guys. I we will link it below, mods. Maybe one of you can um, put it in the in the um, In the live chat as well my video on why i think calvinism is unbiblical where i deal with this issue in great detail Um, faith is not a work it's never a work conceptually it doesn't count as a work me believing in jesus is good as in it's a morally good thing that i do sure do but is it a work that merits anything no right so good thing i do but work that merits anything no um I'll move on though. Cause that's about all I can think of for that, for that verse. I apologize if I missed something that I should have picked up on. Stefan and Pelted says, if the Bible says God loves those who love him, thereby making a condition we have to fulfill for his love. Proverbs eight seventeen, John 14, 21 and 23. Can we still say God's love is unconditional? Yeah. Um, I have to be honest with you here and say, I'm going to give you an incomplete answer on this one, but it's because I with you, I'm not so sure about the phrase God's love is unconditional in a sense. I agree with it. And in another sense, I don't agree with it. Now there are those who will not think deeply about this. They just want solid blanket answers that are sort of clumsily applied to all situations equally. And I think that this is not the best phrase for that. For example, God loves you, even though you don't believe in Jesus. That's true. So then you can say God's love is unconditional. But if you reject Jesus, God still punishes you, right? And and he rejects you. So God doesn't love you. No, but But he does love you. He died for you, loving you, knowing that you would reject him. And knowing it would result in him rejecting you, but only as a result of your rejection of him, not because he simply in his heart goes, I just don't like you. It's not like that. in my understanding, God. So God, in a sense, he loves everyone in a very real and very present sense, in the sense that he actually wants them to be with him for eternity, but he grants them the free will to make a decision about this. It's my understanding of this. I believe it's biblical. But to say his love is unconditional, um, it, maybe I could put it this way. God's love seems unconditional in that he loves all humans, even the ones who reject him and he dies for them and he, and he seeks to save them. But it's, there's a condition in the reception of God's love. If you want to receive the Lord's love, if you wanted to actively be present in your life, such as dwelling in his presence with all glory and joy, such as experiencing the indwelling of the Holy spirit, like that's an expression of God's love that the unbeliever never gets. And so while God loves them, like in the sense of, I have all these loving feelings towards you, there is yet, you will not experience my love, the fullness of my love. You will not experience it unless you accept, unless you accept it on my conditions. So there's conditions in the reception of God's love, but perhaps not conditions in the offer of God's love. Maybe that's maybe that's a careful way we can put it. And then the verses that you mentioned um, come in play. Proverbs 18:17 or 8.17, sorry. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. Oh, that would be maybe the reception of God's love. It's not just saying I only love people who care, but it's talking about the active experience of enjoying God's love in your life, not just him on his side of things, loving you and desiring good things for you, um, but you actually experiencing it. John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by me. Uh, by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit he talks about it in John 14. So the experience of God's love in my life, that'll happen when when I am someone who also loves God, not just God loving me. Yet John 3 says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So there's his offer of grace and forgiveness to all that whoever believes in him would not perish. Okay, there's the reception of God's love only for those who actually believe. Um the other one you said was John 14:23. Oh, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's again talking about the experience of God's love, not just him loving you on his side of things, so to speak, but you experiencing those specific blessings and the benefits that only come if you're receptive to it. All right, number 17, Scott McKaig says or McKaig I wonder how you pronounce that. Uh, what is the lesson for us from 1 Kings 13, 11 to 24, where the man of God is deceived by the old prophet, eats with him, and is killed by the lion? Like, this is a really puzzling passage. 1 Kings 13. Okay, check out the story. You guys will find this interesting. Now, an old prophet lived in Bethel. Here we are in the Old Testament, right? Not Bethel in California, right? Not Bethel Reading. <laughs> all right. Um, now, an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. Uh, you know, I really have to back up. We got to get more context, or it just ain't going to make sense. It's just there's a lot of stuff here. So, behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, "O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings to you and human bones shall be burned on you. This is not a prescription. Hey, do do human sacrifices for God. It's rather the terror that's coming. Um, God's going to allow them to be destroyed. Um, He's not encouraging human sacrifices someone's going to say that. I've I've talked to that atheist at Barnes and Noble who said that. And we had to look at the whole passage and was like, he was like, okay, fine. Not that one. And he goes to the next one. And okay, fine. Not that one. That one doesn't teach cannibalism like I thought it did. And we did that for like an hour until he gave up all those verses. Um, And he gave a sign that's the same day saying, this is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the, the altar shall be torn down and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar saying, seize him and his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up. Remember kind of like Moses, his hand became leprous as a sign. Uh, His hand dried up and so that he could not draw it back to himself. That was a big sign from God. Yeah. How about you don't mess with my man? I'm I'm protecting him. This is good context for what we read later. God's like, I'm protecting him. The altar also was torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, entreat now the favor of the Lord, your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and became, it became, it became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself. And I will give you a reward. And the man of God said, now this is important. If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you and will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord saying, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. Interesting that God just requires this man of God. He He's delivering a word of God. He's bold. He's fierce. God protects him, but he's told requirement, do not consume anything in this land. Now verse 11 happens. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel. Does that mean he's a true prophet? It, no, there's lots of prophets in the Bible, okay? An old prophet lived in Bethel. We don't know much about him yet. We just know he's an old prophet. And his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done in that done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words that the king is that he had spoken to the king. Ah, so this guy knows that he's not supposed to eat anything in this area. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? And his sons showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his son, his son, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and he mounted it, and he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, Come home and with me and eat bread. Why is he doing this? Because he wants the man to break what God told him. He said, I may not return with you or go in with you. Neither will I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. He starts out good. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way you came. And he said to him, I am, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord. Did that really happen? No, his sons just told him that this guy's not supposed to, and now he's going to lie to him. Bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. Okay. Clearly he's lying. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. And as they sat at the table, this is where it gets really different. As they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet. This is the horrible guy who's lying and deceiving the man of God came to the prophet who had brought him back and he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah. Thus says the Lord, because you've disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord, your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. Then after, uh uh-oh, where did I just go? There we go. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. Like they were just like on orders, you know, like they had just done what God wanted is the implication, I think. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it, told it in the city where the old prophet lived. And when the prophet who had brought him back here we are, had brought him back from the way, heard of it. He said, it is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And then he gets on a donkey and he gets his body, finds it in the road and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body, the lion had not eaten the body or torn the, uh, or torn the donkey. And the prophet took a I'm just reading more because I'm curious, just like you. I don't remember this part. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave, his own grave. This implies like guilt. And they mourned over him saying, alas, my brother, after he had buried him, he said to his sons, when I die, bury me in the grave in which this man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones for the... For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. Okay, what what happens here? Okay, there's different elements um, that that stand out to me at least. So the first thing that stands out to me, uh, Scott, is um, the man of God. Um, So he comes and he has a true word from the Lord. He, He goes and he's bold. And as he's bold and as he's faithful to God, God protects him. But when he later fails in his own sanctification keyword there maybe that protection's gone and now god's going to punish him just like god's going to punish israel god's not a respecter of persons and here you are going like lord sent me to tell you that you've been rebelling against him he you did your own thing and now you're going to be punished well then he ended up doing it too but there's another aspect of this which is not just to say like you christian make sure your sanctification is happening in your life and don't think you can get away with it if you don't in addition to that there's the fact that this, that this man received a second revelation that was just based off some random dude he'd never met saying, oh, an angel appeared to me. He had the clear word of God directly given to him and he had someone else claiming an angel spoke to him. I mean, this sounds like Mormonism to me. And this means, the Bible's making it clear, you can't just trust every guy who comes to you and says God spoke to me. You can't do it. There are things we know God said, We need to always rest on those. And we let those things that God's clearly revealed, especially in scripture, because that's what I know God has said. We always let that be the judge of anyone who says, God's told me this. God revealed to me this, this new revelation. And that would eradicate, you know, from our hearts, from our minds, from our beliefs, Mormonism and Islam and new age stuff and people contacting the dead and things like that. Like it would eliminate all that. Uh, We will not get away with it. If we have new revelation that trumps old revelation, it's in fact, it's weird because on Mormon theology, they have a belief that new revelation, new light, it trumps old light so that they can actually change their doctrines based on new light. Whereas uh, biblically speaking, it's the other way around. It's if anything new comes and it contradicts the old, you reject the new and you keep the old. And that's kind of what we're getting here. But then we have the, the, um, the prophet. And that's the other aspect of the story so this prophet he it seems he didn't believe this guy and maybe he did this as a test maybe he just thought like oh i don't believe him so he lies to him oh yeah god, god spoke to me uh, an angel came to me and told me like you come in you can eat the food it's okay now and he's doing this perhaps as a test he's messing with the man He's just wants. Maybe he's mad at him. Maybe he's one of the prophets who's been telling the king, "Oh, God will never judge us," because there were false prophets saying those types of things. Did they know they were false prophets? No. These guys were just bad people, and and bad people are often confused about things. I mean, I'm often confused about things. We can all be self deceived. So he's thinking like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get back at this guy who's prophesying bad things over Israel." He doesn't believe it's true. Why do I say that? Because after the man dies and gets mauled, and then this guy shows up and he sees the lion there and the donkey there. And he's like, this is supernatural. Whatever's happened. Supernatural. God is clearly the origin of this guy's message. Look, it even cost his own life. Now he regrets that he lied to him. Now he knows that these prophecies are actually true. And so he has gone through a change. So it's a bit of a glimpse into the mind of what was probably a false prophet in Israel, who through, the, through his exchange with this man becomes convicted that his own views were wrong and that this guy was a real prophet. And now he regrets it. He buries him in his own grave and all that sort of thing. Um, interesting stuff. Question 18, Dengue Bros says, ever hear of the apparent Eucharist miracle that Catholics point to? How would you respond to it and how they claim that a apparent miracle has been scientifically verified? I don't know much about it, to be honest. Uh, I just haven't looked into it. I've heard a number of miracle claims and sight, sightings and things like that being claimed by um, Catholics. Um, and I haven't spent a whole lot of time on it, so I don't want to comment on it. But can I say that this connects to my last question? New revelation tested by old revelation, not the other way around. The New Testament is on different points, um, and history itself is is opposed and is and stands in contradiction to certain Catholic teachings, Roman Catholic teachings. And so any miracle that they might present as validation, even if it's a real miracle in some sense, it doesn't mean it can trump what scripture has declared. And so uh, to me, it's these, these miracles aren't that impressive. The first question I answered in today's stream, where I talked about new revelation, a uh, new scripture, I think that applies to any new revelation as well. You've got to say, is this consistent with what God's already revealed? Because the new Testament warns me about false signs and wonders. And I, I don't, how do I know if it's a false sign or wonder, except by testing the, the teachings that come alongside of it. And when you have the teachings of uh, Roman Catholicism that seem to, um, uh, well, at least in the Council of Trent, they anathematize b- biblical views. That's a problem. <laughs> That's a real problem. The denial of of um, communion at the time, the denial of, of the communion to to the saints, they, they would not allow everybody to have the, the cup and the bread. You can only eat the bread um, lest you spill a drop of the sacred cup because there was the Eucharistic worship and stuff like that going on. Um, the claims about the sacraments that are not true, the, the claims about historically not true, the, the claims about um, uh, icons and veneration that seem to contradict both scripture and the thoroughgoing example of the new, of the early church, uh, even in writings and stuff like that. Like that, like these are all things that I'm like, eh, miracle or no miracle, these things are a problem. I let scripture trump your miracle claim. That's having not looked into those miracle claims. I don't know beyond that what I would say if I actually evaluated them carefully. Question number 19, Tuckerg says, Acts 8.16 says that the believers in Samaria were baptized but hadn't received the spirit. Can one believe and be baptized without receiving the spirit? Let's go to Acts 8.16 because there's a little bit more complexity to this, I believe. Um, Okay, so the apostles go... Um, The apostles go to Samaria here. It says the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. They sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for they had not yet fallen for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had uh, only had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. And he goes on this whole different issue going on there. Interesting that Samaria was like, they the way they got the message was like not the normal way. You know, where the apostles go out and they share the full message and the Holy Spirit comes and descends and just powerfully impacts people. Descends might not be the right term, but fallen upon them is, is maybe a more accurate term there. Um, so your your question very simply is, can one believe and be baptized without receiving the spirit um yes like you, it, it's impossible to argue that, that that's a, that that's not a thing that happens now one could argue because it says it right here they had been baptized in the name of jesus implication is that they believed right like it doesn't say that that peter and john that, that they came to them and explained to them the gospel Right? In fact, it says Samaria had received the word of God. That implies that they believed. Then Peter and John come down. They just pray for them to receive the spirit. That's what they don't have. And he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they don't even baptize in the name of the Lord Jesus. So did they, you know, here's a debate I don't know the answer to. Did they have, forgive me guys, I don't have all the answers. Um, Not remotely, but did they have the indwelling of the spirit, but perhaps not the sort of upon falling on them visible you know, actions of the Holy Spirit. Um, in which case, they looked more like cessationists until Peter and John showed up, and they looked more like you know continuationists at that point. Um, th- it, that's possible. Were they saved when they b- received the Word and believed and were baptized? Yeah, absolutely, they were saved. So, what is exactly is meant by the falling on them? What's obviously a um, uh, visible, like working of the Holy Spirit in their lives, probably speaking in tongues or something like that, some sort of spiritual gift manifestation that they're like, wow, the Holy Spirit's really working in their lives, such that Simon saw the spirits given through laying on the apostles' hands, and he's like, I want that power too, Um, so yeah. Um, So let me read your question again, because I feel like I might have lost something in the mix there. Acts 8.16 says the believers in Samaria were baptized but hadn't received the Spirit. Can one believe and be baptized without receiving the Spirit? Um, it doesn't technically say they hadn't. Okay, it uses it even in verse 19 uses the phrase receive the spirit. Um, yeah. Here's the only thing that the the wrench, the monkey wrench in the theory is this. Um, the apostles are standing at the change. The change, right? From preparation for Christ old covenant until the to the New covenant where the Holy Spirit is part of the deal for individual believers The reason I think why in Samaria the Holy Spirit had not fallen upon them was not because every Christian has to have someone lay hands on them for the Holy Spirit to fall on them it's a second experience after salvation that I wouldn't go there I think you might be putting too much into the text. What I would say is um, this was a way of ensuring apostolic authority, in the early church so that the foundation of the church is from the apostles the spirit comes from laying on of their hands so it can affirm that they are the source for the theology we believe about jesus that is not the case today right we have the scriptures that are that because of that same reason of what happened in the first century the scriptures are that source that authority for us on what we believe about jesus so i i hesitate to to try to transport what happened here which is a commentary about apostolic authority in the in the first century to um a church that goes around saying like have you guys had the upon experience and i need to pray for you and you have to have this experience i'm not trying to weigh in on whether that's a thing or not i'm trying to say i don't know that i would use this passage to teach that thing i wouldn't do that i would need other scriptures to support that um I I can't answer more fully because that's all I got for you. So we'll go to question 20. Mickey Foley 105 says, I always get anxiety and my heart starts beating fast whenever I try to speak up about social slash biblical issues to my family, mainly my dad, who's a progressive Christian. How can I overcome this? I don't know, man. Uh, Overcoming anxiety is not my expertise. (laughs) Um... Um, not, not at all to disregard your question. Cause I will try and share with you things that I might find helpful. Let me just first say, my answer will probably not be enough for you. Um, and that's just on me. Okay. That's not at all on you. Um, you can continue to seek for counsel and advice and stuff like this. I know that God has not given us a spirit of fear, right. But of love and a power and of a sound mind. And I think that if we remember, uh, if you remember that it is by the truth of the word of God, by the truth of the Holy spirit, that you're going to speak that can that can help calm you to some degree you make sure that you don't go ever go beyond what scripture says and if you don't go beyond what the bible is actually saying about things you're not making assumptions you're not getting out on your own then you have more reason to have confidence in the lord because once you go away from just what scripture says and what god has revealed then in the conversation you start like you can't just grab onto every conservative talking point you see online and think that is those are the christian talking points Like that doesn't work. Some of them are, do overlap, right? They do, but you can't just grab them all and use them and think you're then standing on scripture, um, because that's not always the case. So when it comes to progressive Christian, social, biblical issues, talking to your dad, I mean, talking to dads is intimidating. I guess that's something you have to work through. Um, how can you overcome the anxiety and your heart beating fast for me? What, what helps when I deal with anxiety and stuff like that is prayer. Uh, It genuinely helps Uh, stop whatever you're doing, shut it off, turn the screen off, go on a walk and pray, get away from whatever's going on and pray and pray, Lord, help me to have a calm heart as I want to talk to my dad. I care about his, his, his soul. I don't just want to combat him. I want to reach him. I pray you'd open a door for me to talk to him and say things that would have a difference, make an impact. Um, pray, pray that you would have a calm heart, Pray that you would remember the confidence with which you can speak with, with um. With confidence about the word of God, about the truth of God, about what God has revealed. Um, oftentimes, progressive Christians are loaded, loaded. Just in my honest experience, you guys, you guys have been there too. Progressive Christians tend to be loaded with rhetoric, and word games, so that it becomes difficult to interact with them. But this is because this is how progressive Christianity is often established is with rhetoric. So sweeping insults towards whole groups of people that, that they're opposed to. Um, um cutesy phrases and statements and quotes that are criticisms of whatever version of Christianity they don't like, usually evangelicalism, evangelicalism, you know, the, you know, those those terrible evangelicals. Like I don't even know what evangelical means anymore because sometimes I see people say evangelical and they're talking about real strong conservatives. And so many people say evangelical and they're talking about progressives. So I don't even know always what it means anymore. Um so you, you have to like have a calm heart and be ready for those. That can be kind of intense. Um, one thing I'd recommend if you talk to your dad is stick to one subject at a time this is something that progressive Christians don't usually want to do I'll, I'm being honest with you guys I know this is insulting to some I only mean it because because I think it's true um, progressive Christians often want to bounce from one subject to another and move away from one one issue onto something that's more of a pet thing that they feel like they have a lot of things they can say about but maybe you've identified something that's actually really important and worth discussing and so you want to you want to target that one issue, so you can just say, "Hey, this this is when I deal with cults. It's the same thing, you know, false religions. It's the same thing." I've talked to people. I go, "Hey, can we can we talk about that after we finish this discussion we started on this issue?" Like you said that um, uh, that I that I don't need to follow the Bible all exactly because you know I don't want to put God in a box. Can we talk about that before we move on to you talking about gay bashing and how bad that is? Because that's a different issue. Like you, you, you said that like don't put God in a box. Like let's just talk about the logic of that a little bit. Like this is this may not work. Okay, I'm just suggesting possible things. Um, but Mickey, pray, uh, ask God for wisdom. Every time you think about the anxiety of talking to your dad, you need to think about the things that cure that anxiety: calmness in your heart, calmness in your mind, confidence in the truth of God's word, and the need to share it with others. Every time when when one triggers, anxiety goes up. You need to be thinking about the things that calm that anxiety, my counsel for what it's worth. I wish it was better. And on that note uh, of of my insufficient answer, I'll end today's stream with prayer. Um, Father, we lift up uh, Mickey. We pray that you give him wisdom as he talks to his dad, as he wants to reach out to him and have a healthy relationship with him, but also to get through the barrier. Um, It's possible. and, And if it's the case that his dad just has a large number of prejudices against those evangelicals or that conservative Christianity that are making it so that he can't really think fully and clearly about a topic because he just keeps running in his mind to all the pejorative phrases and quotes and slogans that he knows. We pray that he would slow down and he would be able to think more clearly one issue at a time. And we pray that you give Mickey calmness in his heart. Let him realize that he doesn't have to actually make anything happen. He just has to be a good and faithful representative of truth and of Christ in that moment. Although we ask for all of us that you just help us to be better witnesses, uh, be ready to give an answer.